Gentlemen, hope you had a good turkey day like I did. And now we've got these holiday trees everywhere. Don't call them Christmas trees. That'd be politically incorrect. Holiday trees. I just saw that in the news last night. New name for you to call your tree. Honey, let's go out and get a holiday tree. What's a holiday tree? I don't know. That's what they're calling it these days. The world changes, doesn't it? There are some things that don't change. Aren't you glad about that? Uh, they're in the Bible this morning. Let's turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. And we have completed our study of chapter 5 and our study of chapter 6. And we've really come a long way because in chapter 5, Jesus in this sermon wanted to teach us about the, the meaning of the kingdom, what it means to be in the kingdom, and specifically the character of someone who's walking in the kingdom. And uh, in the Beatitudes, in the first part of Matthew 5, we saw what a real believer looks like, a person who's a kingdom citizen. And then we saw that a kingdom person is one who uh, looks at the, the law of God in the scriptures and applies it very differently than anybody else applies law to their lives. Normally when we think about the law, we think about just what we do externally. We don't speed, we don't shoot anybody, we don't steal from somebody. But what Jesus taught us is the law of God goes right down to the heart, the intentions and motives of our own souls. The reason is God is omnipotent and omniscient. He knows everything, and therefore everything either pleases or offends Him. So it goes down right to our hearts. We saw that all in, in chapter 5. In chapter 6, we looked at God as Father, really, and we looked at our devotional life, our fasting, our prayer, our almsgiving, our giving to the poor, and we saw how all of that really is to please the Father. Our Father has given richly to us, and we seek Him because we love Him. And in the latter half of chapter 6, we saw that if God is our Father, we really trust Him to provide for us. We ain't going to worry about stuff because our Father uh, clothes the grass of the field. He feeds the, the ravens, and surely He'll take care of His own children. And we look to Him as our Father and trust Him that he's going to treat us as his children. Now, when we come to chapter 7, we're really looking to God as judge. And it's very important to get to know God as judge because he is a judge. Uh, when we sing the uh, wonderful Christmas carol, A Joy to the World, uh, if you'll look at the psalm from which that comes, Psalm 95, the psalmist is taking delight that God will come and judge the world. So that's, that's what we're taking joy in is that the judge is going to come. And the reason we take joy in it, he's going to bring right, right, righteousness and justice to the whole earth. He's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to vindicate the righteous. So we trust God to be judge. Otherwise, there's no hope for us. Now, of course, his judgeship scares the bejabbers out of us because everyone knows that we're guilty. But because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we know that we can come close to the judge even in all his righteousness and holiness. But in chapter 7, we're going to look to him as judge. In doing so, there's a lesson of humility here for us. We're going to see that as we get close to God in his holiness and his judgeship, uh, and there's a sense in which every mouth is stopped and self-righteousness ceases. And so it's very important for us to know him as judge. It is a motive to our sanctification. You'll remember that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, two major motives for our sanctification. One is the love of God and our gratitude for His grace, so the love of God. The other is the fear of God, the, the, the reverence that we have for His judgments and for His holiness. So we're motivated by both all the time. And chapter 7 particularly will focus in on this second motive, this second aspect of our motivational framework as Christians. So let's take a look at the first 11 verses, which is what we're going to examine this morning. And let's just pray that God will really press this into our hearts and shape us into the image of these kind of people. That uh, Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Okay, let's turn back to these first five verses. We'll spend a good bit of our time here looking at these because they are complex. They are very important. We are looking at how the... God, uh, God's character as judge works in us a true humility. And we're going to see, first of all, that humility leads to gentleness. Leads to gentleness. And we'll see how that gentleness plays out, particularly here in this concept. Uh, you'll notice, for example, in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, or 1 Peter 3, 8. I selected both of those because in both cases, you will see the combination of humility and gentleness. In Ephesians 4, for example, if you want to turn to 22, page 2267 in your Bibles, Ephesians 4, Paul is urging upon the Ephesians the ethical implications of the gospel, the ethical implications of what God has done for us. And there are a series of ethical implications, ethical injunctions upon the Ephesians. But the first one, the very first one, significantly, is that they should live in unity as a church, as a group of believers. How important that is, unity. Those of you who have not experienced it in your churches now know how important it is. Disunity is extremely destructive. But here Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So in chapters 1 through 3, he describes the calling. Now he tells them what it means to live it worthy of the calling. And look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, humility, or rather, unity is very difficult. Unity requires personal character. It requires a gentleness toward one another. You're not going to have a unified body when people are harsh toward each other. And where does gentleness come from? It comes from humility. That's the reason the two of them were put together there. You'll see the, first thing in first, or the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Paul and Peter put these words together. So indeed, here we're going to see that the humility that comes to us, uh, or rather the gentleness that we need to express toward others, is born of humility. Now, notice what this humility looks like in verses 1 and 2. And this is on your outline as A. Do not judge your brother. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Scriptures. How often do you hear someone say to you when you've you've said, you know, I don't think that's right. Or I don't think people should do that. And someone says to you, judge not that you, that you be not judged. It's uh, a vast misunderstanding of what's being said here because in other parts of the scriptures, of course, uh, we are taught, taught to judge. Look at verse 6, for example. Do not give to the dogs what is holy. You're calling somebody a dog. You're calling somebody a pig. <laughs> looks like there's a little bit of a judgment going on there. And also, if you'll, if you'll look over with me at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, you'll see the necessity for judging in 1 Corinthians, uh, and that would be on uh, page something. It's right before 2 Corinthians. I know it's in there. Uh, look on uh, page 2197. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, and here you have the instance, remember, of the man who is having sexual relationships with his stepmother. 
and the church is bragging about it. Why are they bragging about it? They're, they're bragging because they're saying, look how tolerant we are. Look how inclusive we are. We don't judge people just because of their sexual practice. We don't judge people because of their orientation to do this or to do that. And they were very boastful about their inclusion of all kinds of people regardless of their sexual orientation or sexual practice. And Paul says to them, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and he, he tells them that this is a matter for church discipline. And as a matter of fact, the discipline has to go to the full extent that if the person doesn't repent, they're excluded from the church. And furthermore, if you look down at the, the bottom of that page in the text, he, he says, uh, verse 11, um, well, no, let's back up to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, he's saying, I'm telling you to exclude people from the fellowship, you don't, but you don't exclude people from your, your acquaintance who are in the world. You do business with people like this. You, you show kindness to people like this. You, you go to the Rotary Club with people like this. He said, I'm not, I'm not saying you don't do that. I'm just saying in the church, you show these discernments and distinctions. And then if you'll read on, he says um, in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Wow. So he says to the church, y'all judge each other. And then in Matthew 7, Jesus says, don't judge others. So obviously there's something we've got to deal with here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what Paul is clearly teaching is that you have to make judgments about moral behavior. And you have to be discerning about moral character. So you are making moral judgments. But on the other hand, back to, now back to Matthew chapter 7, we are not to judge other people as God would judge them. In other words, we don't condemn uh, people to everlasting hell. We don't have that power. That's not our role in life. But we can judge folks and must judge folks in the civil courts as guilty of this crime, this crime, or that crime. And in the church, we must judge folks who are not living lives becoming a, a, a follower of Christ. So if someone ceases to live a life that reflects that they're following Christ, a judgment has to be made by the church, and then a decision has to be made as to whether they're to be included or excluded. It looks an awful lot like judgment, doesn't it? So what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 is obviously more nuanced than most people would allow. And I find that most people, really, especially younger people in our culture... Uh, they uh, would simply say, you know, this is something I believe for myself, but it's up to you to figure out what you believe. And that's considered tolerant and inclusive. This is not what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that there is a moral order. Just look at Matthew 5, when we're given the law of God and how to apply it. And he is saying that the law of God applies to everybody. So our tolerance of one another is not by saying, I have my moral code and you have your moral code. No. Tolerance works like this. We all, whether we realize it or not, have one moral code. It's the code of God. There is a God. And He has revealed His pleasure for men. And some are following Him and some are not. However, I'm tolerant of you as a person, even though I disagree with you, and even though you are out of order with the law of the universe, I still tolerate you and love you. Now, there's real tolerance. Tolerance is not, well, I have my moral code, you have your moral code, we have an equal claim to truth and righteousness. That's not what Jesus is teaching here when he says, judge not uh, that you be not judged. He is teaching, rather, that we must not be censorious. If you read Stott's commentary, you'll find that's the word that he uses, other scholars use it, that's the word that we're talking about, censorious. What is censoriousness? To be censorious is a person who delights to censure other people. A person who delights to condemn other people. A person who actually 
if truth were known, delights that they are out of favor with God instead of in favor with Him. Now there's a judging person. There are all kinds of problems with this. The first problem you run to, into uh, is in uh, verses 3 through 5. And here we learn that in order uh, to be gentle, we must repent before correcting others. We must repent before correcting. What we're taught in the New Testament is we do correct one another. It's like a healthy family. What is a, what is a family like where people just kind of come to supper then everybody goes and does whatever they think according to whatever moral code they think. Then they come back to supper, uh, to breakfast in the morning. And then they go out and do whatever they want to do with no accountability to each other. And then they come back to dinner that night. No, a real family is living life together in mutually accountable relationships. That's what the church is supposed to be. But in order for us to correct one another and to judge in the right way each other's behavior and to be discerning, we must first of all repent. And notice the problem here of the person who doesn't repent. They're coming to you and saying, oh, I see a speck in your eye. I see, I see a problem there. And, and they're all over your problem. Meanwhile, they've got a log coming out of their eye. And Jesus is giving us a very humorous picture here of someone who's trying to be Dr. Fix-It. And he's, he's one of the sickest people in the world. I mean, what's it like for you if you're in the doctor's office and he's there to fix your broken leg? And he comes in and he says, here, let me, fix, let me look at your leg. And you say, doctor, what's wrong with your arm? Well, I don't know. I just, I, I fixed myself. And this, is, this is what I came out with. He said, get off my leg, man. You ain't doing anything with my body. Uh, and that's, the way, that's what it would be like for us to judge one another without repenting first. The only way in which we can actually help each other in this family and hold each other accountable and live under the judgments of God is if we first of all repent. Now let's back up for just a moment to verses 1 and 2 because he says there, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. In other words, anytime we take the law of God to one another, whether it's our children, our spouses, our friends, someone in the church, you must first of all get yourself under the judgment of God before you come. You don't come over the judgment of God. You don't come as the judgment of God. You come under the judgment of God. Well, if you come under the judgment of God, you have felt Matthew 5 all over you. And whatever it is you're going to fix, you realize that you need to be fixed. And whatever commandment it is that's being violated in someone's life, you realize you violated the same commandment. And you kind of sing in a lower key, don't you? Because you realize you're talking to a fellow sinner. You're talking to a person, of a fellow judgee, who is coming under the law of God. There's a, there's a huge difference, and you all know it, between someone who comes to you to help correct something in your behavior who comes as a person who knows of their own weaknesses, as opposed to a person who comes to you arrogantly acting as though he's never violated any of these principles himself. You know, when someone says, well, I never, I never what? I never would do that myself? Or I've never done it before? Or I've never seen this before? I never. Well, you can forget that. Uh, What Jesus is saying here is, yes, you will ever. You, You will do that. I mean, just think about it from the psychological perspective. You know, I've, I've talked to people who, who are in that business, and of course, as pastors, we deal with psychological issues too. And, and I'll just tell you what my experience is. Anytime I'm talking to someone who's, let's say, uh, bipolar depressive, you know, manic depressive, and I'm sitting there listening to them talk about their depression, and I'm listening to them talk about their manic phase, and I'm thinking, you know what? I've, I've been pretty close to that myself. <laughs> Or you talk to someone who's uh, paranoid. I mean, they're, they're psychologically labeled as a paranoid. And I've realized, you know, I've had some of those thoughts myself. <laughs> or you talk to someone who's schizophrenic and is hearing voices. And you say, I've come pretty close to that myself. You kind of like thought I was hearing voices at times. Or, or you, now you're all thinking, well, the pastor is nuts. Um, <laughs> or if I listen to someone tell me about their adulterous affair. You know, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if I had just taken this step and this step and this step, 
I could have been right where that person is. I've had those same thoughts. My mind has gone down that way before into adultery. Or someone says, you know, I, I lied. They tell an awful lie. I think, you know what? I've told lies before too. You know, anytime you're involved in anything that's a disor- human disorder, if you will really honestly think about it for a few moments, you're about that far off from it. And you've certainly done something in that realm yourself. And you've been somewhat like it yourself. We're all very fragile people in this broken world. So if we're going to help someone get better, if we're going to help someone especially be more like Jesus Christ, there's only one kind of person you can be, and that is a person who is honest and who admits that, you know, we're all in this together and we're all struggling. And when I talk with someone with psychological disorders, for example, well, or let's make it more difficult, someone with with moral disorders, yeah, I realize, you know what, I had some advantages. It's almost undoubtedly true. If I'm dealing with someone who has a major uh, moral issue that they're dealing with in their lives, I can trace that back behavioralistically, usually, to something, some influence in their lives. And when I compare my life to that, I didn't have the same influences. I had privileges that that person didn't have. And when I look at it, really, uh, I'm I'm more a product of the good things that have been put into my life than I am of any moral character that I did this right or that right. In other words, as you think about it long enough, you begin to understand that, you know, but for the grace of God go I. And if we all live to be as old as Methuselah, You'd commit adultery, you'd kill people, you'd steal from people, you'd, you'd be guilty of defrauding others. I mean, you know, if you live long enough, you'd do them all. So, I mean, I'm just grateful that we die early enough before we commit all the whoppers, you know, and just completely shame our family name when you think about it. I mean, honestly, what are the odds that you could live 900 years and not, not commit the worst sins that we can think of? I mean, even take something like terrorism. You know how awful... The terrorism in the Middle East is, and Hamas, and, and, and the, the Muslim Brotherhood, and all the ones that, that we talk about. And, and of course, what they're doing is completely wrong. It's sinful. But can I just remind you of a simple fact? That's what we did when the English were oppressing us. You know, and we all laughed at them. They were in their red coats, marching in straight lines. We were behind trees, sniping them off one at a time with terrorist acts. That's what we did when we were being oppressed. I mean, if you think about it, we all kind of are in this together as human beings. And that's what Jesus is saying. Just be very careful when you judge one another that you not be judged because with the same measure that you use against them, that same measure is used against you. Just realize that we're really not better than anybody else. We all have the same need. The worst sinner you know in your life, the person you're having the most difficulty with, is in no more need of salvation than you are. And we've got to keep remembering that. Now, when someone comes to you like that, you, you feel it, don't you? You know that they're singing in a lower key. You know that they're not putting themselves over you. They're down there with you under the judgment of God. One beggar trying to find, help another beggar find bread. One judged person, trying to, one, one prison inmate trying to help the other prison inmate find freedom out of the jail. So that's, that's what Jesus is saying to us. Judge not in that sense. Now notice also that he says here in verses 1 and 2, and we're backing up here a little bit, but notice in verses 1 and 2 you get the real, the real crux of the matter here. That when we judge wrongly, what we're actually doing is taking the place of God. This is the ultimate problem. That when we judge wrongly, we are displacing the judge of the universe. Remember, God is going to judge everything in the end. He's going to take care of it all. You don't have to fix it right now. All you have to do is be responsible to use your influence. You try to fix it, but you can't fix it. You keep trying. You and I have to keep trying. There's only one being who can ultimately fix it. And there's only one being who can judge without any sin on His record. That's the Lord. So there's got to be a a continuing deference to His righteousness, a deference to His perfection, and the rest of us, it has to be clear, we're all imperfect, we're all marred, we're all in need of salvation because we're all under His judgment. So the problem with censoriousness is that it displaces God and a human being is trying to become the Creator Himself and the Judge Himself. So our humility comes 
from enthroning God as judge. That's the reason we say chapter 7 is about the judgeship of God. It's God as judge. And when we have Him in His place, then there's a true humility among us that we are creatures and sinful creatures and redeemed sinful creatures, all of which make us humbly, uh, put us humbly at His feet. So here we see then, do not be censorious. Now, back to repent before correcting. Let's talk about that for a moment. Of course, you get this in that classic story in John 7, 53 through 8, 11 about the woman caught in adultery. And you remember what Jesus says at the end, He who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, adulterers were stoned in the Old Testament. But Jesus was simply showing that this group of Pharisees were being censorious. They were taking delight in their judgment. They thought they were better than this woman. And so he just throws back in their face, okay, if that's really who you are, you've not committed any sin, then you go ahead and throw the stone. And he's showing us that the only way in which we can exercise the judgment of God as his vice-regents is if we know we have committed the sin. And that if we ever did have to throw the stone, it will be reluctantly because we ourselves are the sinners too. For example, how, do, how was the woman caught in adultery? Who saw her? Who are the, yeah, you got it. Who are the witnesses? Who's the witness? Okay, let's see here. You say this woman's committed adultery. Okay, who here saw it? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's just what I thought. Nobody here is going to admit because if you saw it, you too were engaged in it. We should stone you too. That's the whole problem. So in the judgments that are issued in the church, there is a very different attitude. It's very different than you would get in secular courts, for example. We have to be people who know that we're all under correction. And there's a difference between someone who is making judgments and using discernment and helping someone with their moral life on the one hand and doing it out of love for that person to have a more fulfilled life and to honor God with their life on the one hand. And on the other hand, a person who's like a, a moral policeman trying to get people in trouble. You know, there was a woman one day who called on the police to come to her apartment because uh, her neighbor was uh, being uh, completely inappropriate and scandalizing her. So the police came over to her apartment and said, Madam, what's wrong? And she said, well, the man next door or across the, the courtyard in my apartment is he's standing nude in front of his window. And the policeman was trying to find the window. He said, ma'am, I, I can't see your curtains are... Or I can't see out of this window. She said, well, you step up on this stepladder, you'll see. <laughs> hmm, uh-huh. Let's be sure that we repent before we correct others. There was a, a true story of a man who came to see a psychiatrist and he had his hat on, he took his hat off and he had a fried egg on his head. And the psychiatrist, you know, they're trained to just not be scandalized by anything. So, mm -hmm. have a seat. And he said, now, what's, what's wrong, sir? And the man, the patient said, I'm here to talk about my wife. Uh, you know, it's crazy. Uh, all judging, all judging is hypocritical. Uh, and that's what Jesus is showing in verses 3 through 5, that when we are out of sorts in the way that we're judging each other's behavior, it's because we're not judging our own behavior first. And all censoriousness runs that problem. And that's the reason for the illustration. We all have this big two-before coming out of our heads claiming that we're Dr. Fix-It and I'm going to take the speck out of your eye. What well, if you saw an ophthalmologist come into the room with a two-before out of his head... You wouldn't have anything to do. You wouldn't let him touch your eyeball. And that's what Jesus is saying. You all shouldn't be touching each other like this, trying to take specks out of each other's eyes until you've had surgery on your own face. And so it's all hypocritical. Why do we do this? Before we leave this, this concept, let's ask ourselves this question. Why in the world would we try to take a speck out of somebody's eye when we have a log in our eye? Well, I've thought a lot about this. And I'm sure there are many reasons. But I think ultimately, it's just part of our own brokenness. In our own brokenness, being lawbreakers and being under the judgment of God, we try all kinds of strategies to get ourselves right. 
with God. And so it's, I think it's out of our insecurity as lawbreakers. And we're trying to figure out how to fix this. Well, if I can, uh, if you've committed a really bad sin and I can really unload on you, there are a couple of things I'm accomplishing psychologically. One is I'm convincing myself you're a whole lot worse than I am. So by tearing you down, I am in some ways uh, building myself up. At least that's what I think I'm doing wrongly. And if I can show that I am scandalized by your terrible behavior, then I show that, well, I never, I would never do that. So my moral outrage is a way of defending myself in my own inner moral insecurity and that I'm trying to take the high road. It's a perverted way of taking the high road that I'm going to be scandalized by your behavior. Uh, the other reason I think that we tend to unload on each other, uh, on each other's sins, is that if I can show uh, that there is cause and effect in your life, in other words, you're so bad, all these bad things are happening to you because you're bad. If I can convince myself that's true, it makes me feel secure. Well, I've not done that, so these bad things aren't going to happen to me. And so it, there's a, there, it comes out of fearfulness and insecurity before the judge himself in our law-breaking state. And psychologically, these are defense mechanisms. We can talk to Bill Dwyer more about this. He'll give us a psychological lesson afterwards if you want. But there are reasons we do this. So if you want to address this issue, you have to get at that level of why you're doing this. Why is it first thing you go into the office, get your cup of coffee, and get with your closest colleague at work and run about four other people down? Why, why do you do that? First thing in the morning, you're just taking off after people and verbally tearing people down. Well, because that's your way of fixing the world. And you think that if you'll just show your colleague you know everything's right, or you know how to do it right, you're not as bad as those people then you gain, in your mind, psychologically, you think you're gaining respect because he realizes, well, you're better than those four lousy people you just ran down. It's a perverted way to try to get on top of your problems. It really is perverted. And it comes from a person who has not put himself under the judgeship of God. So instead of starting out your day running everybody down, what, what of course, the Bible does for us, if we'll get into devotional life and actually read our Bibles in the morning, you yourself will come under the judgment of God. That Bible searches every intention and motive of your heart. It reveals it to you that you're in need of salvation. You look to the Lord again, thank Him for the forgiveness of sins, ask Him to forgive you for all the things in your life, and you go to the office a humbled man, a different man. And the biggest sinner in the entire workplace, in your opinion, is yourself because you just put yourself under the judgeship of God first thing in the morning and you were stripped down naked and all your warts were out there and all your sins and diseases and all the reasons why God should reject you, they all came out in the morning and then He clothed you with the righteousness of His own Son and you walked out of the devotional life realizing that you are one blessed person who has received the mercy of God and therefore you got to go give everybody else mercy. It changes your life. So if you're going to deal with judging not, you be not judged, you've got to deal with it at that level. Why are you doing this? What is it your soul is craving? It's either the affection or respect of other people or it's to cease condemning yourself and you try to do that by condemning other people and trying to lift yourself out of the morass by showing how much worse everybody else is. You're doing something that's a, sort of what we call an auto-salvation strategy. It doesn't work. And it violates the commandment of God. And rather than actually improving your moral standing, you're de decreasing, diminishing your moral standing, particularly with God. He says you're like a person with a log coming out of his eye trying to help other people. That's the reason he says, do not, uh, judge not that you be not judged. Now, then, with that attitude of one who knows that he comes under the judgment of God and on his own right cannot stand up to God. He must receive mercy from the judge, okay? Now, when you're clothed with that reality, that gentleness, 
Now you can do what Galatians 6.1 says, what Paul says to the Galatians, that when you correct each other, do so gently. Otherwise you too will be drawn into the same sin. And that is the irony. The more you come down harshly on people, self-righteously, the more inclined you are to walk right out of that room and do the same thing. As a matter of fact, you already did it. You already committed the same sin that the other people are, are committing, which is ignoring what God told you to do. So uh, when we're clothed with humility, then we can go to our brother. And then, as the Scripture says, we must correct each other. We must judge each other in that sense of judging each other's behavior according to the Scriptures. That's what healthy families do. But that judgment is not censorious. And that judgment, and if you've ever experienced this, and I trust most, most of us, if not all of us, have. I hope you have. Having someone come to you and judge your behavior and judge what you did and convince you and draw you out of that behavior. How many of you here have had that experience where someone's actually drawn you out of... Okay, now how did that happen? It happened because the person doing it, number one, came to you humbly. They acknowledged that they too are sinners and that they've probably done the same thing you did. If they did, they would have told you. Now, they, don't always, they can't always honestly say, if I'm dealing with an adulterer, I can't honestly say, you know, I've done that too. But what I can say, I've had all those thoughts. And let me just tell you what, what I've done with my thoughts, because I struggle with it too. Whatever it is that we've experienced in common, that person probably shared that with you. The second thing that you noticed right off the bat was that they were coming to you because they loved you and they had your best interest at heart. If they came to you angrily, they, I doubt that anybody here was changed by an angry person. I would imagine that every one of you who experienced correction in the household of God experienced it because the person came humbly and he came with your interest at heart. You know the difference when someone's correcting you angrily uh, and they really don't care whether you change or not except that what it, as it affects them. Opposed to a person who really wants you to change because it's going to improve your life and make your life better. There's the difference between censoriousness on the one hand and loving mutual correction on the other. We've got to get good at this. Well, the church must become a healthy family. Otherwise, we have nothing to say to this community. If we can't live in family with healthy mutual accountability where judging of moral behavior is taking place in a loving family context, we really don't have anything to say. What do, we, what do we say to them? Come and be in our dysfunctional family with us? Uh, no, we, we want to say come and live out this with us. Okay, let's look again at another aspect of humility. In verse 6, he says, Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Here's what he's saying. Real humility leads to discerning restraint. It leads to discerning restraint. Now, this is interesting. If you'll take your, uh, just turn over a few pages and to Matthew chapter 10, you'll get a, an illustration of this in the next sermon that we're going to study, the Sermon on Mission. And here Jesus says in verse 13, if the house, he says, uh, as you enter the house, greet it. And in verse 13, this is Matthew 10, 13, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So there comes a point in which you say, Sonara, where you say, goodbye, and the judgment of God be upon you. I remember one time I had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house. Uh, maybe you've had that too. And I sat down and listened to their spiel. I raised a few objections that I didn't think were answered very well. And they were being quite stubborn about their positions. And I said, look, I'd be glad to work with you as long as you want uh, to, to talk these things through because I'd love for you to come to know Jesus Christ savingly. And they continued to defend themselves. And eventually, I just said, look, I'll be glad to work with you. But if not, the judgment of God rests upon you as a sinner. It's really on you. And you have to give answer for that. And you have no saving answer for it. His judgment is on your head. And I felt like that was the most loving thing I could do before they, before they left my house, is just announce the judgment of God. And I'm not going to harass them. Uh, I'm not going to 
to you know, lock the doors and tell them they can't get out until they're Christians. I just wipe the dust off my feet and I say to them, the judgment of God, you can deal with this. I've, I've given you everything I can give you. You'll find I've given several examples here from the Acts, Acts 13, Acts 18, Acts 28, where the Apostle Paul will simply say, okay, you, he says to the uh, uh, Pisidian Antioch, uh, Antioch uh, folks there, you've judged yourselves unworthy of salvation, so I'll take it to the Gentiles. So you've judged yourself. You don't want to hear it anymore. So we don't harass people. And sometimes, you know, Christians, especially blockheaded Christians, uh, go, go too far. When someone shuts the door, let them shut the door and wipe the dust off your feet with sadness and with tears. But you, you don't, uh, what he says here, you, you don't give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. I mean, you don't go to the pigsty and say, oh, wouldn't, wouldn't a nice pearl necklace uh, be attractive on this sow? You know? Come here, come here. You know, put the pearl necklace on. How long is that going to last? It's a total waste. And he shows you why you don't do that. Number one, you're preventing unnecessary contempt. When you throw uh, holy things before dogs or you throw pearls before pigs, you're asking them to show disrespect for what is holy and you're asking them to destroy your pearls. And what is the pearl? It's the name and reputation of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. It's the truth of God in the Bible. And if someone's going to drag it through the mud and all that your testimony is doing is giving them more reasons to show contempt for the name of God, you shut your mouth. Uh, you, you can simply say, look, I'd be glad to help you if you'd like to have help with your eternal soul. I'd be delighted to help you. I, there's nothing that would please me more than to help you. But if you don't want help, then that's fine. Well, so be it. And I don't always announce the judgment verbally before I finish a conversation like that. But you know what I'm saying. We do not just feed contempt. You'll notice in Titus chapter 3, for example, even in the church, <clears throat> if someone is in our midst in the church and they're a divisive person, says the Apostle Paul, you warn them twice. And after that, he says, have nothing to do with them. So there comes a point when the church has to discipline itself so that you even put people outside the fellowship. You don't keep throwing gospel pearls so that they stomp on them and show contempt for the name of God. You show respect for the name of God by taking your pearls back and not giving them to pigs or dogs. So there's a, there's a discipline and a restraint that comes with humility. Who says you're the one who's going to save the world by your great persuasive speeches? No, God's going to save the world. He'll use you. Your job is to administer uh, the gospel and the good news in a way that honors and glorifies Him. And you leave the results with Him. Also, B, you will be preventing unnecessary hostility. Preventing unnecessary hostility. Uh, because, uh, you know, we have been taught in chapter 5 that we're to rejoice when we're persecuted. But we don't look for persecution. And when someone only uses what you say to persecute you, you don't give them, you know, if they're hitting you with a hammer, you don't give them a saw and say, why don't you saw my arm off with this too? Uh, just take your pearls back. Take the holy things back. Uh, and um, so there's an important lesson here on humility about pearls before swine. Now, lastly, humility leads to prayer. There's no doubt about it. The more humble we are, the more we're going to be seeking God in prayer. The more we're aware of his judgeship, the more we're going to be coming to him as father. You with me? The more you're aware of God as judge, the more you're going to flee to him uh, in his role as father to you. Your father is a judge. It's, uh, you know, if, if your father's the judge and you get caught for speeding, of course, you wouldn't go before his court because of conflict of interest. But uh, let's assume you did. You know, your father's still the judge, and he, he has to, to rule against you. If he's a just judge and you were speeding, he will rule against you. But then your father will forgive you and probably pay your fine for you. But he has to administer the fine if he's a just judge. That's the way that we are. We see our father as judge, and it makes us, you know, and we, we're in awe of him. 
and it makes us all the more flee to him. Now, when we do, we hear these words from Jesus. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. In other words, we just ask him. We just ask him. I was teaching on prayer uh, in another, uh, out of town a few weeks ago. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but uh, I was telling the congregation how much the Lord just wants to be asked. This woman came up to me afterwards, and she said, she said, Pastor, I have four children. I have two by natural uh, uh, pregnancy, you know, two of my own natural children. And she said, I have two adoptive children. And she said, what I've noticed is, and she said, when you were preaching on this, it just came clear to me why I'm troubled by this. She said, my natural children ask me for stuff all the time. Mommy, 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 mommy. And she said, my adoptive children are very slow to do that. And she said, it's, it's been troubling me. And she said, now I understand why. My natural children have been treating me as parent. My adoptive children have not because they don't yet trust me. And she said, and now I see in my relationship with God, if I'm not going to Him like my natural parent, I'm not yet trusting Him. And it, it grieves Him. So when we just go through this life, don't worry, God, I'll handle this one. Or, you know, last resort, I might pray. But I, I'm not, listen, I'm not going to trouble you with any, any small stuff. I'll only come to you for the big... I mean, parking spot, ah, don't worry about that. I'll handle that. No, your, your, your real parent wants you to know you can come to him for anything because what it reflects is that you trust him. Now, you see it in the next verses. He says, for... He gives you the reason here. B, it, it's because we believe. See, what the woman was saying is true. When we ask, it's because we believe. And here's what the promise is that we believe. We believe that everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And I've listed there a number of New Testament verses which over and over again say, I will hear your prayer. I will answer your prayer. And you look in the Old Testament. And how was the Red Sea divided? Because Moses asked. How did water come out of the rock? Moses asked. How did the, the Jordan, how was it held back in flood season? Because Joshua asked. How were the Midianites defeated? Gideon asked. It's amazing what happens when you actually develop a fatherly relationship with a father. You actually go to Him and trust Him to hear your prayers. You say, well, Pastor, I've tried that. And my mom still died of cancer. And I talked to him about it. And just look, she's dead. So how do you explain that? Well, give me time. Now, there's a day when, if your mother was a believer, you won't be saying that anymore. You'll see how your prayers are answered. They're just answered in God's timing. But one day, if your mama believed... She's coming roaring out of that grave and she ain't going to have cancer. She ain't going to have anything else that causes her any problems either. And you're going to say, my, does the Lord answer prayer? He answers way beyond anything I could have asked or imagined. The answers are beyond what I could have conceived. He is more gracious and generous than I ever thought. That's what you're going to say when you see how He eventually answers your prayers. And He will answer every single one of them unless you ask for something stupid. If you ask for something that's going to hurt you, he ain't answering that one. In fact, his answer is, I'm going to do better than that. So son, just keep asking, but you don't even know how to ask. So if you, if you ask him for a, a new car, and what he has for you is a, is a BA degree, you know, later on you realize you're better off without a car, and you got your BA degree. Great. Uh, your father was wise. And some of you are asking for stupid stuff. It's not advancing your self-interest at all. And there's one here who knows your self-interest. That's the Father. So when you ask in accordance with His will, when you ask in a way that actually advances your life and advances His kingdom, He hears every single one of those prayers and He answers every single one of them in His way and His time. Now, here's the last point. And here's how you do it. You consider. What do you consider? Well, you consider that He is your Father and what I just told you is true. That's what you're thinking about. 
and you trust these things. You consider that a decent father, if his son says, I'm hungry, Dad, and I'd like, I'd like a sausage biscuit, you don't go out and put a couple of worms on a piece of paper and give it to him and say, here, have this biscuit. Of course you don't do that. That's, that's, that's unbelievably wicked. And, and all Jesus is saying is, you, you fallen humans know how to take care of your own children? You don't think God knows how to take care of His children? The reason we don't pray is because we're proud and because we don't trust Him to take care of us better than we would take care of ourselves. That's the reason we don't pray. So, when we realize who God is as judge, we flee to Him as our Father. So yes, of course, we appear before Him in the courtroom, and of course the fine is administered on our speeding ticket, but then we go back into the chambers, the judge's chambers. He takes His robe off. He embraces us as Son. He tells us our speeding is forgiven. He says, Son, hand me that ticket. I'll pay the fine for you. That's our Father. He is a judge, but He's also your Father. And in humility, we will seek Him in prayer. I believe that's how we live before God as judge. And when we do, I'm telling you what, your life will be a whole lot better, and so will the lives of all those around you. And I think especially the ones who are in closest relationship to us. Our wives know if we are putting ourselves under the judgment of God first. It's very evident whether you've done that. Instead of like this, you put your arm around your family and you look up. And you're all under His judgment. You're all seeking His forgiveness. You're all seeking His healing together. Same way in the church. If you're an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, you're putting your arms around your class. You're putting your arms around the sheep and you're looking up to the Father judge together and seeking His help in prayer. That's a man who's been transformed. Let's pray. Father, help us, for we naturally are judgers, condemners. We naturally are censorious. And so we ask for your supernatural help that we may gently help each other. That the judgments we make will be righteous and not self-righteous that the judgments and discernments we make will advance the kingdom and not our own selfish interests, and that the attitude of humility that you would give us would enable us to serve and bless even those that we must correct today. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.